Yes, he's awesome, isn't he? Amen, amen. Hey, uh, well, good morning, Gospel Hope. It is good to be back with you once again. Um, and if you are a guest of this morning, we don't want to welcome you. We have any guests with us first time here at Gospel Hope Church? Great. Hey, thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. Don't forget to stop by the Connect table. We have a gift for you. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better and learn how we can serve you. So thank you so much for being here. Um, we are continuing, as Pastor Rod said, our study on the life of Elijah. Not the book of Elijah. That was cool, though. Yeah, I think that was a Denzel movie, right? Um, yeah. Okay, nobody saw it. All right, not that good. All right. Book of Eli, right? Yeah. Um, the life of Elijah called Against the Grain. And today we're going to be in a passage of Scripture that you, if you have been around maybe Sunday school or something like that, you've probably heard this story at some point. It's where God speaks to Elijah in the still what? Small voice. Small voice. Right. And oftentimes we take that story as a great comfort. And it is. It is. That God would speak to his prophet in the still, small voice. But I think something else is going on in that passage. And I think Elijah is actually a little disappointed that God spoke to him in that way. So buckle up your seatbelts this morning and put your theological thinking caps on. And I hope that God is going to show us uh, something new from his word this morning. The title of the message is simply this, The Lord Works in Mysterious Ways. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we do thank you that you are good, that you are kind, and as we have just sung, Lord, that you are awesome. I pray that you would help us in the next few minutes to really see you and know you better. Speak to us from this passage of Scripture. Change us, shape us, and mold us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Those of you that know me know that I have a bunch of kids. And one of the advantages of being a father to a bunch of children is you get to read some great children's books over the years. And so I wanted to share with you this morning one of my first personal favorites, really life-changing. The title is Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I'd like to read for you just a brief excerpt. Here's what it says. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there is gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was still running and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car in his breakfast cereal box and Nick found a junior undercover agent ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. And I said I was being scrunched. And I said I was being smushed. And I said if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. And no one even answered. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dixon liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said, I sang too loud. At counting time, she said, I left out 16. Who needs 16? 
I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said Philip Parker was his best friend and Albert Moyo was his next best friend and I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone with ice cream part falls off and the cone part lands in Australia. Have you ever been there? Have you had to have a day or a season in your life where everything seems to go wrong? Your state of mind is discouraged. You're depressed, maybe even despairing. Because you look out at the circumstances on your life and you're having trouble seeing a silver lining. All you can see is the thunderheads rolling in. I bring that up because I think it accurately describes Elijah's state of mind in our passage today in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now remember the context of the story. Elijah has just had this victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, a showdown as it were. All the prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah stands alone. God sends fire and honors Elijah's sacrifice and the prophets of Baal and the enemies of God are dealt a defeat. And then Jezebel, the wicked king, queen of Israel, threatens Elijah's life. And so Elijah literally heads for the hills. He runs and we find him in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse number nine, in a cave. And here's what the passage tells us there. He entered a cave and there spent the night and suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? Then Elijah responds to God and it reveals just how despondent he is. Look at verse number 10. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left and they are looking for me to take my life. So how does Elijah feel? He feels hopeless. He feels afraid. He feels angry. And above all, he feels alone. And here's the thing, Elijah was actually right about several of these things. Had the nation of Israel walked away from the Lord? Yes, for the most part, they had turned their back on the God of the Bible. Was Jezebel out to get Elijah and kill him? Yes or no? Yes, she was seeking his life. And you can presume as a queen, she had the power to end his life. So he is a frightened. Was he Alone. Well, at least at this moment, he's on a mountain all by himself in total isolation from everyone else. So yes, the, the nation has turned away from God. Yes, Jezebel is trying to kill him. And yes, you are alone, Elijah. But what I would say about this is even though much of what Elijah comments on is true, it is an incomplete picture. You see, in the midst of his trouble, he had also left out the work of God. 
Because all through this story, even though days were dark, even though valleys long, Elijah found himself sustained by the hand of the Lord. Think about it for a moment. All this time, he's running away and God is feeding him. First at the brook Cherith with ravens. Then he goes to the town of Zarephath and God is feeding him through the widow and the jug of oil and the container of flour. And then he goes and he eats a mountain of meal that God provides for him and it sustains him for 40 days. So even though things are hard, God is still sustaining. What is more, God's power is at work through Elijah. First of all, he raises the widow of Zarephath's son. Amazingly, God wields his power through Elijah. What is more, he kind of commands the weather. He tells it to stop raining. He tells it to start raining again. And last, but certainly not least, he's standing there on Mount Carmel and calls down fire from heaven and the prophets of Baal are slain in his presence. Yes, Elijah was going through some difficult situations, but it seems in this moment, he didn't have the whole picture because he had forgotten about the work of God in the midst of it. But we four were too hard on Elijah. Haven't we all been there? Haven't we all been in situations that are difficult or challenging and all of a sudden lost sight of who God is? Maybe... Maybe it's the bad news we or a loved one got from the doctor. Maybe a, it's a valued relationship that hits turbulent waters. Maybe the bills and the bank account don't quite line up. Maybe you can't figure out how to navigate a situation at work or in your family. Maybe it's that loved one that you really love and they seem to be drifting further and further from the Lord and suddenly our problems overshadow the character of God and it gives way to despair and defeat in our lives. Listen to this principle. Despair over our circumstances arises from doubt in God's character. Despair over our circumstances arises from doubt of God's character. Well, why does that happen? Why do we ever forget who God is in the midst of difficult situations? Here's why. Because it is easy for us to see our problems as big and God as small. It's easy for all of us to see our problems as big and our God is small. And I believe that's exactly what was happening to Elijah up on this mountain. Although God had done all of this glorious work in his life, he was fixated not on the character of God, but he was fixated on the scope and the size of his problems. That's why we had you write down that post-it note. You know, it's a little teeny sheet of paper. But if you think about that sheet of paper, sometimes that sheet of paper, what is on there, can look so big in our lives that we're not able to see anything else, including God. So what we wanna encourage you from God's word this morning is to begin to see God as big and our problems in comparison as relatively small. Because here's the reality. God is always at work on his people's behalf. Now, if you were church going folks, you might say amen to that because um, that's true. God is always at work on his people's behalf. Okay, so Jesse goes to church. All y'all heathens, right? Okay. One more time, 
God is always at work on his people's behalf. Do you believe that? Because God says it over and over again in his word. For instance, Psalm 121, look up at the screen if you would. It says this, I will lift my eyes towards the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. The protector will not, what's it say? Slumber, that's important. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not, or why? Because he's always working. He's always working. He doesn't take naps. He doesn't take breaks. The protector of Israel is always at work on behalf of your, his people. Lamentations chapter three, verse number 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies, what? Never end. His mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When does the Lord work? All the time. One more. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28. And we know that, what's it say? All things, the bad things, the hard things. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Y'all, you might have had a relaxing morning, but the God of heaven is busy. He is always at work on behalf of his people. Can I say it very simply? The God of heaven takes no days off. He is working, he is working, he is working. That is what Elijah needed to remember, and it is what we need to remember this morning, which leads me to my point, simply this. We must trust, trust, believe that God is always working for his people. And maybe I would add one more stroke to that, especially in the hard things. You know, when everything's going good in your life, it is not hard to see God's hand. How you doing, brother? How you doing, sister? Oh, blessed and highly favored. Everything's going good. So I see God, his hand is all over me. My question is, can you say the same thing when the wheels fall off? When you get the termination notice. When the email comes and the lab work's not so good. When the marriage hits the rocky spot, when the kids are rebelling, when the loved one says no to Jesus, in those moments, can we say the same things? I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You know, the one that doesn't sleep or slumber. He's still working. It is in those moments that we must embrace with our whole hearts that God the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth is at work for the good of his people. And if you have trusted in him, that's you. He is at work in your life even when you are sleeping. The maker of heaven takes no days off. So I think this story reminds us of that character of God, the always working character of God. 
And I think like Elijah, there are a couple things this story highlights that we need to remember about God's character. So I want to highlight them briefly. The first one is this, God knows what is best. If we are to trust that God is always at work, we must hang on to this reality that he knows what is best. Back to the story. Remember, so the showdown happens on Mount Carmel. And where does Elijah go? He makes a run down to Mount Horeb. Well, here's the thing. If you know the topography and geography of Israel, Mount Carmel to Mount Horeb is not just like across the street. It's actually about 280 miles. And it's a journey that took Elijah at least 40 days. So he has this triumph up on the mountain, and then he hightails and runs it 280 miles on foot to Mount Horeb. The question we need to ask is what? Why? Why run all the way down there? I mean, you see on the map, that's far. I don't even like to drive 280 miles, let alone walk. Why would Elijah make that long journey? I think there's two reasons. First reason is this. Samaria, the capital where Jezebel is at, is pretty close to Mount Carmel. So reason number one, fairly obvious, he's trying to get away from her. I mean, he wants to get away from her seat of power. He's on the run. He's trying to flee. So he goes down to Mount Horeb. But I think there's maybe an even more important reason why he makes that journey there. Because just running from Jezebel, he could have gone in any direction. He goes to Mount Horeb because if you remember last week, if you were here, Mount Horeb had another name. Do you remember what it was? Mount Sinai. Or as our text actually says, the mountain of God. In the history of Israel's redemption, Mount Sinai played a pivotal role. It was where God probably most powerfully spoke to his people. It's where God delivered the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel through Moses. So in one sense, what is Mount Sinai? It's the place where God speaks. So I think in the midst of Elijah's despair, in the midst of his disappointment, in the midst of his heartache, in the midst of his fear, in the midst of even his anger at God, what does he do? He has the right impulse. He's like, man, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I need to hear the voice of the Lord. So he runs to the place where he knows God has historically spoken in the past. Listen, when you are facing life's difficulties, we must not simply run from our problems. We must run to God. When you are facing life's difficulties, we must not just run from our problems, we must run to God. Can I tell you something as your pastors? Let me let you in on a little pastoral secret here. A lot of times when people are facing life's difficulties, the first impulse they have is to stop coming to church. Can I tell you something from a pastoral perspective? That's crazy. Because it is when life gets hard that we need more clearly to hear God's perspective. It is when the going gets tough that we're like, like Elijah, oh Lord, I need to hear your voice in this. I need you to speak to me. I need to hear from you. And Elijah gets this exactly right. 
God, things are hard right now. Jezebel's trying to kill me. The nation of Israel has turned away from you. I feel all alone. Lord, speak to your servant. So Elijah gets down there and he calls out to the Lord, or God calls out to him from the cave. Verse 9 again, suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then something super profound happens. God shows up. God shows up and he shows up in a mighty, powerful way. Look at verse number 11. Here's what it says. At this moment, the Lord passed by and a great and mighty wind was tearing the mountain and was shattering the cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. That's an important phrase. And in the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. What is going on? This is weird. God is doing all these like huge things. And then the verse says, and God's not in it. And God's not in it. And God's not in it. Why does God do these displays and not speak to his servant? I think we understand that if we go back in Israel's redemptive history. Remember, several centuries before, God spoke to who on this mountain? Moses. And how did he speak to Moses? So glad you asked. Let's look at Exodus chapter 19. Here's what it says. There was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast from the trumpet so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire and the smoke came up like a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. What? So when Moses goes up the mountain and God speaks to Moses, it's in fire and earthquakes and thunder. That's how God speaks to him. And Elijah goes up the mountain and there is fire and earthquakes and wind and God is silent. What's happening? Put yourself in Elijah's shoes for just a moment and think about this. If you are Elijah, you no doubt go to Sinai because you remember what happened after Sinai. God wrecked their enemies. This pillar of fire, cloud of smoke, parting Red Seas, walls falling down. I mean, God is just decimating the enemies of the Lord. He reveals himself in power. And so Elijah says, I've tried everything else. I'm going to Sinai. I'm gonna go up that mountain and I'm gonna hear from God and then I'm gonna come down and kick butt and take names. In the power of the Lord. And up he goes. Fire, and Elijah's like, yeah. Wind, yeah. Earthquake, yeah. Silence. 
It's as if God is saying to you, to Elijah, Elijah, I got a different ministry for you, brother. You want a Moses-style deliverance? I love you. I'm going to work my plan. But I am not bringing Moses-style deliverance at this time. I'm speaking to you in a still, small voice. Put yourself in Elijah's shoes there for a moment. That would have been the crushing of a dream in a second. God is basically saying to Elijah, I will deliver my people. I will take care of Ahab. I will take care of Jezebel. And I'm not going to use you to do it. Has God ever said that to you? You have these plans, you have these aspirations, you have these dreams, you have these visions that you desperately want God to show up in, to do something in your life in the way that you want him to do it. And he says, I'm with you, I'm at work, but I'm not gonna do it in that way. I got a different plan for your life. Listen to the statement very carefully. Though the volume of God's voice may vary, the work of his hands never waver. Though the volume of God's voice may vary, the work of his hands never wavers. Can I ask you a very important question and really be honest with this between you and the Lord? Have you ever been disappointed in God? I mean, don't give like this Sunday school answer. Oh no, bless God, I trust him all the time. Seriously, have you ever been disappointed in God? And if your answer is no, then it's probably because you're not walking with him. Because as Pastor Rod read that passage, what does it say? His thoughts are what? Not our thoughts. His ways are what? Not our ways, as high as the heaven above the, is above the earth, so are his thoughts and his ways higher than ours. Sometimes the God of the Bible is going to disappoint you, but it's not because he's powerless, it's because he's wise. The God of the Bible knows what is best, and if we are to sustain difficult times, we, like Elijah, need to give God his divine prerogative to be working in his way and say, God, we trust that you know what is best. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do when God disappoints? How do you handle that? Two ways you can respond. One, you can get bitter, you can get angry, you can get despairing, or you can trust that he knows better than you. My favorite genre of movies is what I would call the heist movie. You know what I'm talking about? Ones that fit good into this category are Mission Impossibles 1 through 27. Will Tom Cruise ever die? I don't know. I hope not. I mean, just keep making them. I love them. Here's the plot of every Mission Impossible. Ethan Hunt, who's played by Tom Cruise, goes from impossible and ridiculous situation one right after another. Kind of getting away, getting away, getting away, getting away, getting away, getting away. You're like, how's he going to get away? Just rising in intensity the whole movie. And then you get to the very end, and it looks like all is lost. 
And then suddenly, awesome theme music comes on. You know what I'm talking about. And piece by piece, you see all these kind of cutaways. And you found out that everything that happened in the movie was exactly according to the plan of Ethan Hunt and the bad guys getting nabbed. And you're like, awesome! How wise, how clever, how smart. Listen, someone way greater than Ethan Hunt has his hand on the wheel of your life. Are there valleys? Yes. Are there ditches? Yes. Are there ditches in the valleys? Yes and yes. And yet that is all part of the master plan of the Lord Most High. He knows what is best. In fact, he specializes in taking bad situations and turning them for good. Does he not? So Joseph's brothers... They try to sell him into slavery. In fact, they leave him for dead. And what happens? God uses that to feed the entire world. Haman exalts himself to exterminate God's people in the book of Esther. And God takes that self-exaltation, turns it upside down, places Mordecai on the throne at the right hand of the king and saves his people and gives them a home. You get to the New Testament and the Roman government tries to destroy the church of Jesus Christ by sending persecution. Oh, that didn't work. Why? Because God turns that around and allows the nation or the gospel to go to the ends of the earth as a result of that persecution. And God can take whatever suffering you are experiencing in your life and turn it around for your good and the good of his name and his glory to the ends of the earth. Listen to this statement very carefully. No one outmaneuvers God. He cannot be outmaneuvered. Satan has been trying it for millennia and he has never won a victory. We've got to trust that God actually knows what's best. God is not just strong. God is not just good. God is not just merciful. God is wise. He is not making the best out of a bad situation. He is perfectly unfolding his plan for the maximum good of his people and the maximum glory of his name. To him be the glory forever and ever in the church. Amen. This is our God. I do not know what your difficulty is right now, but I can assure you God has a plan and it's a good one. Scratch that. God has a plan, and it's the best one. Listen. Though God's path for you may not be your first preference, it is always in your best interest. The path you're on is probably not the one you would have chosen But the path you're on, if we read the scriptures accurately, is exactly in your best interest because God's hand is on the wheel. What did Elijah need to remember? He needed to remember that God knows what's best. And we all desperately need to remember that this morning. Number two, 
We need to not only remember that God knows what is best, we need to remember that God knows when is best. So God speaks to Elijah after the wind and the earthquake and the fire and the whisper. And again, Elijah shares his lament with the Lord. This time God, in response, outlines his plan to Elijah. Elijah, you want to know what I'm going to do? Here's what I'm going to do. Look at what it says. 1 Kings 19, verse number 15. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you are to anoint Haziel as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Melalath, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. I mean, we just read these words, but you got to understand what's going on in Elijah's mind right now. God is saying to Elijah, I'm going to take care of my enemies. But I'll do it in my time, Elijah. I want you to go back and you're going to anoint the ones who are going to take care of my enemies. And Elijah has to feel that like, oh, that's not my job? Mm -mm. Haziel, Jehu, Elisha. They are going to do the job. Your job is just to appoint them to leadership. And then the Lord speaks again. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Remember what Elijah said? I alone, I alone am left. And God's saying, no, Elijah, you're not alone. I was at work before you were on the scene. I was at work when you were running and I will continue to work after you are gone. I will keep working. You see, sometimes we, like Elijah, can get tunnel vision. We get so focused on our problems, so focused on the immediate, that we can't get our eyes lifted to see the big picture. Yes, yes, raising that toddler or teenager, I'm doing both right now. I don't know if I'd recommend. <laughs> Raising that toddler or teenager, is it hard? Yes. But don't forget that the seeds you're sowing are not for tomorrow. The harvest always comes after the sowing. You got to wait on God's time to do that work. Yes. Yes, that relationship that you're trying to navigate or that person that you're trying to help grow in their relationship with the Lord, man, that can be, it can be mind-numbingly difficult. But don't try to do it all today or tomorrow. Trust that as you're faithfully doing what God is calling you to do, then he will bring the harvest at the proper time. That's in his hands. Trust him to do the work in his time, in his way. Sometimes we just get so impatient and focused on the immediate that we don't see that God is at work. Listen, is the church in North America struggling right now? The answer is, but the kingdom of God is not. Because there are places in Africa and Asia where the gospel is exploding at unprecedented rates. Let's not lose sight of the big picture. It, will we see a revival in our lifetime? I don't know. 
But that's not our job to determine. Our job is to be faithful with what God has entrusted with us and plant lots of seeds and let God do it in his time, in his way. He knows what is best and he knows when is best. So keep plowing, keep sowing, keep laboring because we know that our work is not in vain in the Lord. Elijah was tempted to quit and give up and give way to despair. And God is saying, look, Elijah, I'm not doing it right now, but I am doing it and you have a part to play. Get back in the game. It might not be the role that you envisioned. It might not be the path that you would have chosen, but I will do my work. You put your hand to the plow. I love this statement by John Piper. Every day, in every circumstance, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you might be aware of three of them. You've got to trust that God is at work. We must trust, friends, for to navigate these dark times, these valleys, these ditches, these rough patches, we must trust that both God's plan and his pace are best. His plan, his pace are best. He knows what he's doing and he knows when it should be done. And we can just entrust ourselves into the God's hand who has never been out maneuver. Galatians chapter six, verse number nine. Let us not get tired of doing good for we will reap at the, what's it say? Proper time. When? If we don't give up. Trust God knows what is best. Trust God knows when is best. Huh. That's a little bit of our story at Gospel Hope Church. You know, I was um, a couple weeks ago, I was standing over here, I think it was in between the services, and there were a bunch of kiddos running around and, and stuff like that. And there was a, uh, a legacy member of First Baptist, been part of First Baptist Church for a long time. And they were just kind of watching the kids mull around. And I put my hand on their shoulder and I said, you know, this does not happen if you were not faithful. This doesn't happen if you were not faithful. I think that's such a powerful object lesson for all of us to remember that like, man, God's kingdom is not like a flash in the pan. We're not trying to be a startup like Google or Meta or Uber. We're trying to be something that outlives us, which is the kingdom of God. So let's just keep sowing and sowing and sowing and trust that in the proper time, the harvest will come. Why? Because our God is never sleeping, he's never slumbering, but he is always working for the good of his people, for the exaltation of his name. He never stops working. And we can rest in that reality no matter what type of dark valley you, you find yourself in. I'm not minimizing your pain. I'm just saying God is able to do something great with that pain. God can turn that pain into something beautiful. God can turn that pain to bring people to know him, to make you know him, to change lives and impact his kingdom for all eternity. Huh. There's no question that through this story, we see that God is at work for his people even when circumstances look bleak. But frankly, should we really be surprised 
seems like this is just the way the God of the Bible always work. In fact, in fact, the life of Elijah and the story of Elijah, I think, points us forward to the life of Christ. Where in Jesus, God was at work even when the situation looked extremely bleak. Look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. Once again, it says this. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, Elijah's words. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Like Elijah, Jesus was zealous for the Lord, even more so. Like Elijah, Jesus was abandoned by those who should have stood with him. You think Elijah was alone? Jesus was truly alone as he hung on the cross. Like Elijah's, Jesus' enemies sought to take his life. But in Jesus' case, the forces of darkness did not threaten him. They actually killed him. And so what did God do? The greatest act of evil in human history, the most treacherous, treasonous, wicked act in human history, the murder of the very sinless, spotless son of God. What did God do in that terribly bad situation? He took the public execution of Jesus Christ and he turned it for the good of his people. He used the most vile act to earn his greatest victory, the redemption of the people of God. It is only through the bad and the evil and the darkness of the crucifixion of Christ that we sit here today redeemed this morning. Listen to me. God specializes in taking bad situations and turning them for good. If he could do it in the days of Elijah, take this darkness and bring about his victory eventually. If he can do it through the work of Jesus Christ preeminently, friends, can't he do it in your situation? Look, can't we take those little piece of paper, this little thing that tends to contort and cloud our view and miss out on the greatness and the faithfulness and the wisdom of our great God. And instead of seeing that problem as huge and our God as small, see our problems as small and our God as magnificent. He cannot be outmaneuvered. He cannot be outthought. He cannot be outplanned. The God of the Bible is on your side if you have trusted in the work of Jesus. And he is working right now, right now while you sit there in your seat. He is busily at work for your good, for his glory, for his praise and honor to the end of all creation. Let's not lose sight of that. He knows what is best. Amen. He knows what is best. He knows when is best, amen? We've got to fight to believe those realities because life is hard. But our God is wise. He's not frustrated. You know, God is, God is acutely unaware with the feeling of frustration. Because what does frustration say? Frustration says, I want to do something and I can't figure out how to do it. 
God of heaven ain't never happened to him because he perfectly and flawlessly brings about his plan out of love for his people and out of zealousness for his glory. Let's trust him this morning. Here's what I wanna encourage you to do as we respond this morning. You took that little paper, right? Hopefully you got a problem situation on there. And in just a moment, there's gonna be several passages of scripture that go up on the screen. And these passages are passages that are promises of God that remind us that he is at work in your life and on your behalf. I'm gonna ask you to in a moment, gather with three or four people around you and take that piece of paper and crumple it up in your hand and begin to pray those promises of God with and for one another. Just ask that God would help you to believe those promises that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, that he is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, that he is a sun and a shield and that he gives grace and glory and no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Begin to fight to believe those promises so that we can take those problems that look really big and say, yes, they're hard. Yes, they're difficult. But in comparison to my God, they are infinitesimal. Let's exalt the Lord. Let's magnify him and make him look more like he really is great and mighty and wise and good. I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna ask you to respond by gathering with some people and praying these promises that you see up on the screen, asking God to help you believe these promises more than your problems. Let me pray for you. Father, give us faith. Thank you that you have spoken in your word. The Bible is filled with exceeding great and rich promises. I pray that right now your people would fight to believe them, that we would cling, that you are able to take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good. Lord, give us faith in your promises right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Find some people, pray with them, pray the promises of God.
thank you that when you do a good work, you begin a good work, you are faithful to complete it. Lord, we thank you that when we commit our way to you, that you bring it to pass. We thank you, Lord, that when we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that you exalt us at the proper time. We thank you that when we wait on you, Lord, that one day we will rise up with wings like eagles. We'll run and not grow weary. We'll walk and not faint. Lord, we just thank you that you are always at work. We commit ourselves into your hands this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Another way that the Lord in his grace has given us to remember his ability to take bad situations and turn them for good is through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Eating the bread and drinking the cup is a reminder that Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died and he rose victoriously on our behalf. And anyone and everyone who would ever put their hope in that wonderful message will be saved. God took the vilest act of the crucifixion and turned it for the good, the rescue of those who would dare to put their hope in Jesus. Let this be a reminder that God is always at work for his people. And if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've turned away from your sins and put your hope in him, then we invite you to partake of the Lord's table with us this morning. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, man, we would love to have a conversation with you. There's gonna be some folks in the back. Our prayer team is standing by. And if you have questions about what it means to trust in Jesus, we'd love to have a conversation with you. If you didn't receive a communion cup this morning and you would like to partake of the Lord's table, would you just raise your hand? We've got some ushers that are standing by. They'll come and they'll find you in just a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 23, it says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this body is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me thank God for his broken bread. Father, we thank you. We honor you, we worship you, and we praise you for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you that Jesus bore in his body our sins. The lash, the nails, the humiliation was a symbol of an even greater suffering Jesus was enduring, namely becoming our atoning sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, that on the cross, you crushed your son to rescue us. 
Thank you for the broken body of Jesus. We praise you for him. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Let's eat together. The text goes on to say, in the same way, after he took the cup, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you that on the cross, Jesus did what bulls and goats and sheep could never do. He, by the outpouring of his blood, created, initiated a new covenant. A covenant that said, no matter your background, no matter your walk of life, no matter what your starting points, no matter the depth of your sin, if you trust in the work of Jesus, you are brought into fellowship with God. Lord, this is the best news in the world, and we honor you. We worship you, and we thank you for Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb who will sit on the throne who we will sing praises to for all eternity. We worship you for the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Let's drink together. Lord's table reminds us that God can take the worst situation and turn it for good. And can we today, as we close by worshiping God, the Son who died and rose again so that we could be made right with Him, will you take that problem that you have and just cast it before the Lord? Say, Lord, if you can take the death of your son and rescue your people through it, you can work in my situation and rescue me. Redeem my heart. Help me to endure. Oh, God, I need you. Let's remember that our God never stops working. He was at work on the cross. He was at work in the life of Elijah, and he is at work today. Let's stand on our feet and worship 